0: Plundergrounds episode 125? I don't know what the hell I'm talking about.
1: Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and Dungeon Delve science fiction,
2: watch yourselves! Hey, what up Ray? It's Joe Richter. Another fantastic episode, man. I love hearing the stuff you say. Um, I, I I just think you always do a great job of putting out episodes. I wanted to call in though and say that I found it interesting when you were listing your sort of rubric for what was high fantasy and what's low fantasy. I agreed with everything you said, but I found what I found interesting was the fact that by the you know rubric you set out with the stakes and romance over realism. By all of those, Harry Potter is absolutely high fantasy. The stakes are the world fighting Voldemort. Uh, it's act- It's absolutely way more romantic in the capital R sense than realism in the capital R sense. Uh, magic is ubiquitous and very powerful. Anyway, man, peace out.
0: I knew it. I knew I wasn't going to get away that easily from the subject of high and low fantasy. There is no clean escape. (laughs) You got me, Joe. You're absolutely right. By my own rubric, Harry Potter is high fantasy. I did mention that it was a little bit of both, and I've got some more to say on that subject, but let's revisit the rubric for a second for anyone who didn't listen to the last podcast I was mentioning that high fantasy and low fantasy are terms that are purely an academic exercise. You can't come up with a hard line definition, and most things have a little bit of both in them. My rubric was scope, stakes, romanticism versus realism, and magic. And to draw those out just a little bit, the scope uh, would be Whether it's an epic canvas with a huge scope or whether it's a small scope, and that would tend to be high versus low. Uh, Stakes, is it the fate of the world or is it something more personal and relatable? Romanticism versus realism, those are capital R's. And my thinking is that uh, low fantasy tends to be more realistic, whereas high fantasy tends to be a bit more romantic, broad strokes, hand-waving. And then magic has to do with the potency and ubiquity of magic in a setting. How readily available is it? How strong is it? How often is it seen? How open is it versus secret? All those things kind of play into high versus low. And there are probably other things that you could apply to it as well. But if we go back to Harry Potter, you made super valid points why Harry Potter's high fantasy. But even though the fate of the world is in the balance and they're constantly you know struggling against Voldemort and there's this seven book story arc that takes place on an epic canvas at a grand scale, The stories are also about which house is going to win the Quidditch Cup and whether Harry is going to get together with Cho Chang or even if Hagrid's going to be fired or not from his job. So it's both high and low in the same novels. Now, I think it actually builds. So if you only ever read the first novel, it would probably still be high fantasy, but it would be a lot more iffy. Right. When you take all seven together, there's no question about it. Uh, But the world gets Uh, more magical and deeper as you go forward in the series. And that's especially true of a series like Game of Thrones. When you look at Game of Thrones, it starts off very low magic. It starts off very historical. There's almost no magical creatures in it at the very beginning. There's dire wolves, which are arguably, arguably not even magical. And there's the White Walkers, which are... We see them kill somebody in the beginning, but, but even in the beginning of that, we're not really sure what the white walkers are. They actually could be something that's not magical by the end of it. You have dragons and all kinds of crazy, you know, the, the red God and and all these weird spells and, uh, just, uh, faceless assassins and all these things going on that are magical. But in the beginning, it's not very, so it grows in. I was always high fantasy because of the canvas, right? Because of the scope, um, But it tends more towards realism, at least in the beginning, than romanticism. Actually, it tends more towards realism throughout. So, honestly, you know what? I think my rubric may be trash. I I think that high and low fantasy may be a gut call. And I'm going to just go back to the beginning and say they're almost useless terms. Uh, Sometimes labels are helpful for shorthanding things and you get it maybe 80% right. I think high and low fantasy, you could kind of argue endlessly about. Uh, and you kind of make a gut call on it, right? Is is Game of Thrones high fantasy or low fantasy? Well, I don't know. Ask 10 people and let's see if we can get any kind of consensus. I don't know that we will. But uh, some things are absolutely high fantasy, aren't they? Uh, I think most Camelot stories are high fantasy. So most versions of the Camelot uh, King Arthurian's tales are, are high fantasy. But then you take something like... Um, i give you his name here for a minute, uh, Cornwell, Bernard Cornwell, is that, is that right? Uh, who wrote The Winter King and, and his Arthurian series, and it's very gritty and realistic, and it's uh, very much low fantasy. Merlin is a druid, and his magic is something that could be explained away uh, most, if not all of the time. So that's a very low fantasy Arthurian tale. Well, that's the probably last thing I'll say about that, but it's interesting food for thought. And I really thank you for calling in. Thanks for the kind words and thanks for calling me on my BS there. That was, that was a good one. You got me. <laughs> in fact, you must be good at this because we had a conversation recently on, um, on discord about what we talking about skill checks. And I was pointing out that uh, I thought something that OSR was not old, old school games were not, were, you know, perception checks and, you, you called me on that and said, well, um, in the very first, you know, the original edition of D&D, wasn't there a detect secret doors? And I thought, damn it, you're right. That was a roll to detect a secret door. And that is, in fact, a kind of perception check. There's also a surprise roll. There's some other things in there. Now, that it's not as ubiquitous as, uh, as it is in later editions, you know, checks for everything but it was there in the beginning and you can see where it comes from. It has a lineage there. So, uh, you know, once again, we're coming back to this idea where arguments that often get very heated are somewhat academic and very hard to pin down one way or the other. It's hard to find hard line definitions for many things in life. Uh, and games are, are no different.
1: Hi Ray. It's Barney from Loco Ludus. Thanks for a great episode and thanks ever so much for your uh your uh, commendation and feedback on on my podcast um and i'm glad and i'm glad that you've been getting some inspiration out of it or some enjoyment or some relaxation or uh, whatever we might say i'll leave another message I love the fact that you were initially perhaps tempted to go to one and a half speed, but then thought better of it. Um, I love that. That's, that's wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed your discussion of Bob Peake. Um, and, I, and I followed your advice and did a little search there. And, of course, the first thing that comes up is in Apocalypse Now. Um, I, so I loved your discussion of how his work Uh, works how it's structured how it's laid out and all of that Um, a little bit with this kind of high fantasy or swashbuckling or this kind of thing that you know a thing with with troubled definitions is the word style so you said that Peake has a strong style and then later that he engages more with realism so I wasn't sure if you were opposing realism and style but of course as as your discussion was all about was all about the structural aspects of style and that style is everywhere in some way and we we as you did need to articulate what that style is so i think your articulation of the the wonder of the work um is fantastic and the word style is neither here nor there um, I hope you're keeping well. It was, again, really enjoyable episode, and thanks again. See you.
0: It's interesting that you bring up that comment I made about uh, being tempted to play you at a faster speed. I was listening to Shadow of the GM the other day by Barry Dewey Robertson, who is a Scotsman who already talks a little bit fast, but I, I needed to save a little time, and I decided to crank the the settings up to 1.5, to, to make him speak even faster, and the next thing I knew, I had lost 10 minutes of my life. I had time traveled into the future, had to very quickly dial back my phone so I could re-enter the time stream, and uh, I'll never I'll never do that again. So, <laughs> but seriously, I, I like to listen to people at the speed at which they talk. Um, I find that messing around with those settings to speed people up is, while a time saver means that I spend not only spend less time literally listening to them, uh, I spend less time or, or maybe I should say I put less attention into what they're saying toward what they're saying. Uh, and I don't find it very helpful to listen to people at, at fast speed. So I, um, I appreciate it when somebody takes time to say what they need to say. I tend to just keep rattling and <laughs> <laughs> and things, I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. And uh, as, as the saying goes, I don't know what I think until I hear myself say it. And that that is often the case. Uh, I have to talk my way through things. I'm a verbal person, I guess. Well, um, it, uh, and uh, if I didn't make it clear, I do recommend Shadow of the GM. I think that's a fun podcast. So if you haven't listened to it, uh, uh, it may be the only podcast that you're tempted to slow down rather than speed up. What else? Oh, uh, I don't know that I was entirely consistent in talking about Bob Peake's art in my use of the word style and romanticism. But when I say style, I mean, you style can mean a couple different things, right? So style can be a very broad term. All artists have a style, not all artists have the same style. And, uh, and so you can talk about somebody's style, their personal style, and that style may be realism or that style may be, um, Uh, something that's not very stylistic or very stylized so that I think that's the difference there there's the word style which is kind of a generic and then there is stylized which means it is uh, kind of removed from reality or done in a broad stroke or or um, simplified or or made angular or whatever in such a way that it kind of uh, pulls itself more into the abstract so that's a difference. Um, highly stylized, I think, you know, that just means that uh, somebody is exhibiting more style than somebody else. And that is a thing. There's a continuum there. Old broadcasters used to do everything they could to work their local accent out of their voice so that when they delivered the news, they were essentially accentless. If that's I don't know if there's a better word for that than, uh, than just making one up, but they were without accent, sans accent. And uh, that was supposedly to shoot at the lowest common denominator or make them understood by the most number of people uh, and to reduce confusion. And I think that makes total sense. But what they were doing is essentially tamping down or, or damping down their style, right? Their, their personal voice. They, they became more generic, if you will. And there are other people that are super stylized. They, they like push their style. Um, they push hard on their style. So you can think about the way people dress this is another example. A lot of people kind of try to dress toward the middle. They don't want to stand out. They want to look nice, but they also just want to, they don't ever want to be called on, on their clothes. They don't want everybody to, you know, to point out like, oh, that's an unusual shirt. Where did you get that? For some people, That would be a compliment because they're pushing the boundaries. They like to dress extravagantly. They like to wear unusual things. And somebody said, oh, that's an unusual shirt. Um, They would take that as a compliment. But there's many other people that would be like, ooh, I'm never wearing this again. I don't want to wear an unusual shirt. So (laughs) style is a funny word that way. It can mean a lot of things depending on the context. Uh, And uh, I appreciate your kind words about uh, me speaking about art. I like to speak about art. It's a near and dear subject to me. I uh, felt like the last podcast I did with uh, with my buddy Angus uh, on the graphic novel Whiteout was a good example of because uh, we were talking about the black and white art in there and how it's built from the ground up. And for me, really digging in on the visuals of something. It's its own language. And I, I even hate myself for saying that phrase because at my actual dissertation when I was was back in college and writing my dissertation for composition and rhetoric, I went back to the action painters of the 50s. And I sort of disproved this idea that painting is a language and more to the point, I actually um, wanted to disprove that that was even a legitimate question. If anything, we should be asking is language a form of painting, not is painting a form of language, because painting and image making predates language or at least written language by by you know thousands of years um, we have cave paintings but we don't you know in those cave paintings there's no words written out there's no letters that we can tell there are some graphical symbols that might mean something like letters but there's no alphabet uh, up until the Phoenicians. so or again, that we know of, <laughs> but there probably was verbal language at the time, right? They probably spoke to each other um, in in some rudimentary form of language. And so you could argue that verbal language comes first and then visual language and then written language. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's legit to ask, is painting a form of language? But the answer is uh, unequivocally in my, my mind, no. I used to have this argument with one of my painting professors back in my undergraduate Um, I won't say her last name, but her first name was Nina and Nina would come by and we'd be painting. And I had a studio in the art building. There was about four of us that were invited to, to take on studios there. And so I'm painting and, uh, this friend of mine and I, we don't, we didn't like to title our paintings. We felt like if you had to explain it, what was the good, you know, I, I, a painting should speak for itself, the visual. You don't need a title, the title. And if somebody starts to take the title too seriously, then they're paying attention to the words and not the visuals. And so we didn't like to title things. But Nina insisted that we title our paintings. I don't know if it's so she could enter them into her grade book and put grades on them or what. But uh, we had this uh, fish bowl that he had had a goldfish in that had died so we took this fish bowl and we wrote out a whole bunch of titles for paintings that we just made up like kid sister and dolphin show and uh <laughs> doll and like I don't know we just made up a bunch of took a bunch of phrases right um, iteration number 32 we make some abstract ones too right and so we'd throw all these into the into the punch bowl and whenever we'd finish a painting we'd pull out one of, of the strips of paper and we'd title our painting that And she found out that we had this punch bowl and she got super mad at us over this. And I don't really, to this day, understand why she got so mad about it because I felt like it was a valid artistic point that we didn't want to title our paintings Uh, and we were doing it for her own record keeping. So, you know, she had a handle by which to call these paintings, but she would always ask us what our titles meant. And then we'd have to make up some bullshit about um, why uh, this painting I did of an abstract landscape was called Dolphin Show, right? So uh, it was an interesting time and still kind of a fond memory for me because we laughed about it endlessly and it probably cost us half a letter grade. But, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, I, the whole point I'm getting to is that um, it, it's interesting because we use language to talk about paintings, but paintings are their own media, their own form of communication. So while we can describe things we're seeing, they actually attack us on a different level than language. They're, they're pre-linguistic or um agnostic in terms of, of linguistics right they they uh it's just like music it's a different axis you can record music in symbols but uh it, that isn't the music you can't look at a sheet of paper and see the notes. And you may, if you're gifted musically and know how to read music, you may be able to sort of like hear it in your head, but you're really, what you're doing at that point is imagining the sounds, not the, the, the symbols and the sounds are two different things. And, uh, I don't want to get into semiotics cause I'm not that good at it. Uh, despite having a degree, um, in that area, um, it's a very deep subject and it gets very frustrating to kind of talk about in terms of finding a ground level. But I do think there's this like illegitimacy to trying to overlay one thing on top of another. And one of the things that I did would take uh, painter's, um, you know, like uh, Klein or, or Pollock or, you know, other people from the action school. And I would try to break down their paintings in a symbolic way, like a, analyze them for registers. Um, so most most languages take place in either a vertical or horizontal register, right to left or left to right, depending on you know, on the culture. But they tend to take some formality, right? And so I would look for registers. I would look for repetition of symbol. I would look for um, different things and try to find some a uh, form of codification that i could represent as a language and of course failed miserably um, i expected to fail miserably but i wanted to push the envelope as far as i could to see if i could f- see if i would fail miserably or if i would fail at failing and actually find some sort of pattern one thing i did find though was that um, that it relates to the body. There is a thing about handwriting, for instance, where certain motions of the hand are more natural than others. And therefore, when you see a Jackson Pollock painting uh, and he's, you know, working autonomically very like uh, from a very visceral, but very like unprogrammed, unscripted, uh, subconscious sort of way, right? Um, Where he's not controlling the movements of his hands more than just like whatever he's feeling in the moment. uh, The hand has to kind of fall into certain patterns that can kind of look like the loops of an L or you know other forms of cursive writing because that that is natural for us that's a natural motion and you have to kind of fight to not make natural motions actually and so natural motions in art and natural motions when you're writing um while they're related they're not related to each other they're actually related to the body and and you know, there's just many things like that. And I'm getting way, way down the line here. Um, something I did not mean to talk about on the air, but I'm going to leave it because I think it's kind of interesting and it's where I went today. And look at that. That's uh, 10 minutes gone by. I think we almost have another episode now. Thanks for thanks for uh, calling in, Barney. Uh, I really appreciate what you do. And uh, I guess I appreciate that you've given me a chance to talk a little bit about something I love, uh, even though I'm, I'm halting and, and a little nervous talking about it. I'm going to call that a podcast. Thanks for listening. And you know where to find my stuff, www.rayotus.com. R-A-Y-O-T-U-S. Thanks to Logan Howard for my theme song, and I'm out. Watch out for those rest monsters.